I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to Q&A. A total pause on the trans-Tasman bubble and more outbreaks in Australia. How will the more infectious Delta variant change our approach to COVID? You, as soon as you get the Delta, do something about it. And 10 weeks after its election, Samoa still has no official results. The Prime Minister-elect explains her next steps and what she makes of our government's planned apology for the dawn rains. And then, making a statement in a sea of first-term MPs. Not just there uh, for the job, I'm not just there for the status of it. Uh, I'm actually there to try and make a change. A surprise three-day pause in our trans-Tasman bubble and a citywide lockdown in New South Wales. The ramped-up restrictions come after multiple cases and outbreaks were declared across Australia. Our correspondent there, Andrew McFarlane, joins us now. Morena, Andrew. The trans-Tasman bubble did come with a travellers beware warning, but what has been the reaction to the pause in Australia? Well, I don't think anyone was really expecting an Australia-wide pause on the travel bubble. That announcement came late last night and several people were fairly surprised by it. We know that there is a pause currently on place for Sydney, where I am at the moment, because the Delta variant is definitely swooping through large groups of people. But at this stage, this will be a surprise for people who've gone to, say, Western Australia or even Tasmania for a quick holiday. They have to now wait three days for that pause to be lifted. You've also got to feel sorry for those people who've travelled to Melbourne. You'll remember the travel pause was lifted only a few days ago, so people would have gone there. Uh, making the most of that two-way agreement only to find out that that bubble's also been paused one more time. Do you have any indication of how many Kiwis there are affected? Yes, yeah, Statistics New Zealand released uh, earlier in the piece when the bubble first opened in April. I've got the numbers here. They said 85,000 people made the most of that two-way agreement. There were 85,000 border crossings in April just after the bubble was announced. And that number would have increased significantly, I'd imagine. But pre-2021, there were only about 26,000 border crossings. So even in the early days of this Trans-Tasman agreement, people were making the most of it. So you can only imagine how many Kiwis are now here in Australia weighing up how they're going to get home. And what's the general reaction from the community to the announcement of a citywide lockdown and extended lockdown period? I think a lot of people were asking why didn't the state premier put all of Sydney, which is what's happened now, into a lockdown? She had locked down certain suburbs, and I'm here in North Sydney and over the bridge that way. That part of Sydney was in lockdown, but I wasn't, and it didn't really make a lot of sense. But we've started having some cases emerge in northern Sydney and in different areas of Australia, uh, sorry, in Sydney as well. So that's caused the concern for officials that this outbreak has spread a bit further. Even more worryingly, overnight we've heard that a Sydney flight attendant has tested positive. They've travelled interstate as well with what's likely to be the Delta variant. So the worry is this could spread not just through New South Wales but into other states as well. Andrew, the announcement was made quite late yesterday evening. Is there any speculation as to perhaps why? Well, the possibility could be because of those new cases. We've heard of in the Northern Territory a mine worker testing positive because they had a connection to an outbreak in, an outbreak in Brisbane. It kind of feels like the, we the wheels have fallen off the COVID response in Australia over the past week. But also, school holidays are just around the corner for uh, Australians here. So the worry could have been, and we don't know this yet because it was just a statement last night, but a lot of people possibly would have had travel planned to New Zealand. So is this a decision they've made here? 
ahead of that? Well, hopefully we'll hear from the officials sometime this morning uh, or later today when they make that call on Wellington's restrictions. They're expecting to address the situation here in Australia as well. Kia ho maru e hoa. Thanks very much for the up update. Now back here in Aotearoa, Cabinet is meeting this morning to consider the current Level 2 restrictions in Wellington. It will look at overnight testing results and the outbreaks in Australia. So far, there have been no new community cases here, despite an Australian visitor testing positive for COVID-19 after he visited the capital last weekend. Modeler Sean Hendy is with me now. Morena, Sean. Morena. Has New Zealand dodged another COVID-19 bullet? Uh, look, it, it's looking that way. I mean, we still have to, we'll have to wait some time. Uh, you know, we do know that the disease can, can incubate for up to 14 days. So there's still the possibility we'll discover cases later this week. But certainly I think, you know, we probably can say we've avoided a super spreading event. We probably would have picked that up on the testing that's been done to date. So yes, it's, it's, it's one of those um, uh, lucky breaks. The government is looking at considering pre-departure testing, but considering the fact that it, the incubation period can be anywhere between five days and much longer, we've seen even longer periods in past viruses, uh, is that even going to be an effective strategy? How effective will that be in protecting us? Yeah, so, so I mean, pre-departure pre testing is something we could look at, but, it, but it, you know, we, we use a Swiss cheese model here in New Zealand. We, we, we put in lots of protections, um, so, you know, we can't rely simply on one. And as you say, um, you know, you could still be exposed you know just before you got on the plane have a pass a pre-departure test um, and then arrive in New Zealand and inf infectious um, and, and and so it's not a perfect it's not uh, a silver bullet no that's right we know that we are dealing with the uh, Delta variant in terms of what the Australian visitor brought here so we know that it's more transmissible it's got a higher uh, infectious rate but do we know if the symptoms are, are worse? Is this a deadlier variant? Yeah, um, there, there is some evidence uh, coming out of the UK that, that the impacts can be more severe. I mean, it's, it's often very difficult to, um, to, to get you know, very precise understanding of this, partly because, you know, the UK is actually quite a long way ahead in its, its vaccination program. Uh, and that means that, that the people who are getting the Delta variant are actually, they tend to be younger people who haven't been vaccinated. So it's a little bit more difficult to tease out the, you know, the, the symptoms and, and how severe the, the illness can be. But the early indications are that it is a little bit more likely to lead to hospitalisation. Um, and so that is a, that is a concern uh, for us here. Should we have an outbreak, it may put more pressure on our hospital system. Obviously the government is looking at vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds going a little bit younger in our population but does the Delta variant in any way impact the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine? Actually, the, the good news is that the Pfizer vaccine, after you've had your second shot, it looks to be very effective against the Delta variant. However, the fact that it's more transmissible does mean, all things being equal, more of us need to get the vaccine to reach that population immunity threshold. Um, and so the, the, you know, and that probably means we will need to vaccinate um, younger people. Um, with, uh, with the original variant last year, we could have got away with a lower level of vaccine vaccination in terms of reaching population immunity, but these new variants um, you know, do mean we, we need more coverage in the population. And with a new variant like Delta and the way that it behaves differently, uh, what would you say about our current alert level restrictions? Are they outdated? Do we need additional controls? Yeah, look, we, we do need to look at our alert level system and some of the protections we've got in place. Um, we, because of the extra transmissibility, um, you know, our alert level three might struggle to contain uh, an outbreak. You know, we used it very successfully in Auckland last year in the August cluster, um, but actually we'd, it, the, this new Delta variant would challenge um, those settings so we should be looking at that perhaps looking at level two as well I mean it, it is interesting that the 
the government went to, to level two I, that uh, this week. You know that wouldn't have happened, say, um, late last year when we had a you know a, an Australian visitor coming in under certain similar circumstances. So it is it is an acknowledgement, I think, this week that. Um, Dealing with these variants, we need new tools, we need new approaches, and so I think a, a refinement of, of our level two, perhaps bringing in uh, and making more mask use uh, mandatory um, in, in public spaces where we're crowded together. I think people have pointed out that uh, the exhibition at Te Papa was potentially a very large super spreading event, uh, and so, so asking people to perhaps mask up in those situations might be prudent. You're quite frightening, isn't it, when we think about the fleeting contact, just how fleeting uh, that is. Uh, when we look at the current alert level six, uh, the alert level restrictions that we're looking at now, what changes, if any, because Cabinet is meeting this morning, would you feel most comfortable with? What would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need to um, encourage people to be scanning more, you know, whether that's by making it, it compulsory at all venues or just in, in certain venues. Certainly, that you know, we've seen that made a big difference actually this week because that Australian visitor actually scanned in. We very quickly got a, a list of, um, of locations where they had been and that really helped our response this week. Um, so if, you know, if we can if we can lift those levels, whether it's by making it compulsory or encouraging people to do it in other ways, um, you know that would be really really helpful. I think I think we can make more use of masks as well. And if the Delta variant was to come into our community, would I know we went hard and went early last time, but does this look like going harder and yeah, earlier? No, absolutely. We, you know, you really do want to respond very quickly um, to the Delta variant. And, you know, unfortunately, um, look, New South Wales um, perhaps sat back and waited a little bit too long. I don't think we would have taken that approach in New Zealand. I think we would have moved more aggressively than they did in New South Wales. But it is a lesson to us um, that, that you know, we can't relax, even at this stage, even, even now the vaccine is starting to um, be rolled out, we still need to stay alert. Sean, we've been hearing from you throughout the past 15 months and a lot of the science has changed. What you know now is a lot different to what, what we knew back in February when we first uh, you know, spoke to you. So you know, how does that change your modelling? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've been really lucky here is we haven't had many cases to, to deal with. And, and, and that's, that's been useful in a couple of ways. First of all, it means we're not, you know, we're, we're able to look in much more detail at the way that transmission takes place. So we've been, we've been able to show really clearly through a variety of different means, this, the 80-20 rule, right? That it's a, it's a relatively small number of people that go on to spread things. So that's something that's actually played an important role in, in our modelling. I think also um, one of the things that, that's, that's helped the modelling has been the UK. The UK's probably got the best scientific infrastructure for monitoring and, and, um, and, and studying the virus. Unfortunately, you know, of course, their, their systems were overwhelmed, um, but that has meant we've learnt a lot here in New Zealand by watching um, what's going on in the UK. And, you know, I just um, shout out to the UK scientists who have been working really hard under very, very difficult circumstances, but sharing that knowledge with the world, and that's helped us with our response here. And how do you assess the likelihood of each scenario or prioritise what to focus on, especially with a variant like Delta? Yeah, look, it, 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 we're still waiting to learn things about Delta. Um, you know, we're presuming um, that, that it still follows something like that 80-20 rule, um, but that's just our best guess at the moment. That, that might be updated um, as we get more information out of the UK or potentially out of New South Wales now. Um, so, so, you know, we've got to keep our eye on those, on those new variants. That's always um, uh, an issue that we're watching. Um, and, you know, because we do know that the more transmissible variants will become dominant. So when we see, when we hear news about these more transmissible variants, when they start to become more prevalent in other countries, that's actually something we've got to watch really closely. 
uh, looking at over a week of testing results now, does it seem to you perhaps that the Australian visitor who came in last weekend is not a part of that 20% who easily go around and spread the virus? Yeah, it, it looks that way. I mean, when, you know, as I said, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, we will need to wait and, and see um, over, the, over the coming week. Um, but it does look, you know, had there been a significant super spreading event, I would have expected it to show up in the testing by now. And, and so that's good news. Um, the, the Australian visitor was partially vaccinated, so they had their, their first shot, I think, of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, that may have helped um, and, and may have prevented further spread. And in terms of the maths, what level of vaccination, what the vaccination rate across the country, would you be most comfortable with when we're looking at the Delta variant? Obviously, the higher the better, but what, what is your goal? Look, you need, we need to get, for, for these more transmissible variants, we need to get up into, close to that 100% level you know they really don't leave us much um, room for error um, so we're going to need really high coverage I mean every every vaccination helps and, and we've seen that with potentially with this Australian visitor um, even a partial vaccination has possibly helped us in the situation so so every every shot that goes into the arm is, is, is good um, but we're going to need to really get those levels up high much higher than some of our other you know our, our seasonal flu vaccine um, for example so it, so it really does come down to us now you know if we want um, life to go back to something like it was in, in 2019, early 2020. We all do need to, um, to go out and get that vaccine to, to protect our community and our whānau. Do you think Wellington restrictions should lift today? Um, I, I, I would tend to, I would be on, on the cautious side, I think. Just um, wait for some of those uh, uh, test results to come back. Um, however, you know, the government will be getting the most up-to-date uh, test results uh, today, and that will possibly, you know, assuming they all come back negative, that, that may give them the confidence to move back to level one. Um, but perhaps with, with the message that we, we need to mask up and need to keep scanning. Well, we appreciate your time and your expertise as always, Sean. That is Sean Hendy, COVID-19 modeler. A warning from an Australian epidemiologist on the Delta variant. I was surprised that it's taken us so long to realise this is a formidable uh, warrior. Welcome back to Q&A. 29 new COVID-19 cases were announced in New South Wales in the past 24 hours, bringing the total number of active cases in Australia to 223. The virus has also now spread to the Northern Territory, with a case confirmed there yesterday. I spoke to University of New South Wales Professor of Epidemiology, Mary Louise McClaws, on Friday afternoon, and started by asking her whether the state's initial localised lockdown of four suburbs which she called ring fencing, was enough to control the outbreak. Now, one of the problems with ring fencing is that you have to have essential services such as food delivery, trucks delivery, um, and uh, frontline workers coming and going. And because we have a very low uh, vaccination rate at the moment, that still poses a problem. Uh, in Singapore, they test um, the, the truck drivers uh, were coming uh, from and going into, of course, um, Malaysia to ensure that it's safe. And it's a very sensible thing. And they test them with what's called a rapid antigen test, which takes 15 minutes. So you can sit in your truck and be tested. And I think that that's what we need to do so that we can get essential services in and out safely in these ring-fenced areas. But I don't think it's going to happen this time. Right. 
Now, we will go on to uh, the vaccine rollout a bit further on, but you had been calling for a short, sharp lockdown earlier. Has it happened soon enough? Um, so we've lost uh, time, and with Delta, it's nowhere near like um, the, the uh, wild strains where you can wait and have a traffic light system and wait to think, well, if I'm getting more than five cases a day, I'm starting to get into the amber danger zone. This delta is dangerous as soon as you get a tiny cluster. You need to start responding instantly. And I would have responded on at least day three when there was a consecutive uh, small clusters, but very much a warning that this isn't going to go away anytime soon. Given the fact that you are dealing with the Delta variant, which is known to be more infectious, are you surprised at the change in approach? Because you had your Northern Beaches region uh, outbreak back in Christmas with similar numbers to what you're seeing in this current outbreak, but there was a very different approach. That's right. Um, so uh, that one the numbers were very big right from the start. So they, there was a single digit and then it ramped up the next day to double and kept like that for a while. And that was a good alert system for the um, authorities to go into lockdown. But this is different. Uh, and of course it took over 30 days to get zeros. And that was uh, with an American strain uh, that wasn't considered a variant of concern, that wasn't considered highly infectious, uh, just, you know, the, the usual problems of containment. Uh, but this one, it started slower. But in Victoria, with Kappa and Delta, the numbers went up very fast. Uh, they went to lockdown on the third day, which was the right thing to do, because of course they took another 28 days to have the last uh, case number. And then they only remained at zero for two days until sadly they got one of Sydney's cases um, of Delta uh, just a couple of days ago. So we really do need to rethink our plan again, because this, um, this enemy has learnt very cleverly how to be more infectious, 90%, up to 90% more infectious. Um, we may be seeing something that doesn't need as much of a viral load. It may have learned how to sit on the cell and then penetrate it much more effectively. So we need to be cleverer and we need to respond very rapidly. Don't wait for double digit numbers get onto it immediately. So, so were you surprised, when we t talk about the rate of transmission here, were you surprised at how fleeting the contact was for this Delta variant? Mm. Well, we certainly knew that it was much more infectious uh, than the Alpha and uh, the wild strains. So alpha was more, 33% more infectious than wild strain. And this is about 90% more infectious from the wild strain. And WHO had reminded people of that. And we would have seen in the UK that it only took two months for it to become the dominant strain. And the US is worried about the same thing. So I was surprised that it's taken us so long to realize this is a formidable uh, warrior. And so when they talk about the word fleeting, I think what they really mean is you don't have to have a, a long exposure 
and we use 15 minutes as some um, idea of how long might be close contact, but that was never evidence-based, really. So what we're seeing is people passing a case, and probably what's happening is that that um, susceptible person is going into a cloud of uh, tiny particles that rest in the air for longer than big droplets. So we might be seeing um, that not the fleeting necessarily of the case, but walking into the air that somebody has exhaled, it stays there for longer than previously because they're exhaling more of the smaller particles than the heavier particles. So taking precautions like wearing face masks are really crucial uh, regarding what you've now learnt about the Delta variant. So how, how's the compliance been? Have residents in Sydney been compliant with uh, adhering to the restrictions? Well, they weren't initially compliant, and I don't think it's because they were being uh, difficult to get on with. Uh, you know, Australians are very compliant when it comes to being asked to do something. Uh, you know, even on Boxing Day in the northern beaches, when they're asked to come out to be tested, they came out in record numbers. But what they um, do get is confused. So the rhetoric about this terrible um, Delta strain didn't match uh, the response and the activities by the authorities. So they asked people to wear a mask indoors but failed to tell them they had to wear it outdoors. They didn't. They waited many, many days to do lockdowns or mini, you know, ring fencing. And so it was, um, uh, the rhetoric was fierce, but the actions uh, didn't match. And so Sydney siders are going, well, I'm not sure that this is really that important. Yes, the numbers look small, but they're not telling me to stay home. Now, the chief of the police have come out saying, we don't want to warn you anymore. And we'll find you if you don't wear your mask. So now you'll see all Sydney siders wearing their mask. They're, they're not they're not difficult people. Um, you just have to be very straight with them. For, for New Zealanders, the Delta variant is really now coming closer to home. We've seen it travelling around the world in the past few months. Now it's across the Tasman. Knowing what you know now, what would your advice be to New Zealanders? What you have learnt from the wild strain last year, uh, that's fine. But that's just um, a pilot study. Now you have to learn to respond very fast. Don't wait for high numbers to start asking people to stay at home and hibernate. You, as soon as you get the Delta, do something about it. Stay at home, wear your masks, uh, start testing and start utilising a rapid antigen testing for those essential truck drivers that we need to feed us and, and supply us with goods. So um, we need you to do that before you get um, everybody vaccinated. That was Professor Mary Louise McClaws. And next up, our Pacifica political panel on New Zealand's planned dawn raid apology. How can the government make right wrongs of its past? No, my hockey, my. Welcome back to Q&A. A formal government apology for the 1970s dawn raids was to have taken place here in Tamaki Makoto last night. The latest COVID-19 scare has forced its postponement, but when it is given, it won't be the first 
Here's Connor Sterling. And while we cannot change our history, we can acknowledge it and we can seek to right a wrong. When the Prime Minister announced plans to formally apologise for the Dawn raids, it set just the third such apology in our history in motion. The government has decided to make a formal apology to those Chinese people who paid the poll tax and suffered other discrimination. Research on the tax was commissioned in 1993, then an apology sought by the Federation of Ethnic Councils in 1999. Come 2002, Helen Clark said sorry for the up to £100 tax imposed on Chinese settlers over a hundred years prior. She'd later open a replica gold miners village in Arrowtown as part of a $5 million compensation package. The second was to Samoa for bringing in the Spanish flu, which wiped out 22% of its population, and the killing of independence demonstrators while the nation was under New Zealand's administration. We are truly sorry for what happened all those years ago. Clark delivered the apology in Apia in June 2002 during the island nation's celebration of 40 years independence, describing it as an act of reconciliation to build stronger ties. And while the next apology has been delayed by COVID, history shows us it'll be a rare occasion. It is a rare occasion indeed, and we will bring in our panel now, Auckland councillor and former Labour Party member Ephesor Collins. We've got Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner Saunoa Mali'i, Dr Karanina Sumeo, and Sefita Hauli, Donga RSE coordinator and former journalist. Maloha o Molava mai, welcome to you all. Sefita, I'm going to begin this with you because you were here illegally during the Dawn Raid area in the seven, mid-70s. Yeah. Can you share with us, I mean, what was going through your mind at the time? Because you managed to escape the Dawn Raids, but what was going through your mind when you saw what was happening in New Zealand? Well, I'm not sure that I escaped the Dawn Raids um, <laughs> to that end because you, you'll understand that news travelled pretty fast. And, of course, everybody came to realise uh, that there were certain things happening amongst our families uh, here in New Zealand. And insofar as escaping it, um, no one escaped it. Uh, you may not have been um, an overstayer, but your family certainly were. And you knew of families who were not overstayers, but who were also being uh, harassed at, at the time. Um, the media, of course, in those days were uh, quite a different beast altogether. But word got around very quickly that even without our mobile phones, we were still able to hear and, and know about how certain families were being treated. And we had movement of family members from one suburb to another as they were trying to find out who exactly was being looked for or who was being... And the other issue, of course, was amongst employers because a lot of the employers knew that this was happening. Um, they needed the workers who were being sought by immigration and they also did their bit to try and, and hide them, if you like, or prevent them being apprehended. So we knew um, yeah. it was quite well known. So quite a collaborative approach there and a mobilisation of both the Pacific community and non-Pacific community. Ephesor, uh, when you look <coughs> at how powerful, it takes a village, you know, to mobilise and protect. And I mean, looking back at 
uh, the impacts. We've heard a lot about the experience of the Dawn Raid in the past few weeks. But look, what are the impacts now, the long-term effects of what happened to the Pacific community back then? How are our Pacific community faring? Yeah, there's always going to be a level of pain and trauma that people carry with them. And, and some people will say that, that it's rippled effect uh, into our generations today. I'd say that the, the waves still pound quite harshly on many in our community. We have young people who go to school and they know about the Dawn Raid record label, but they don't know what happened to our parents, to my parents, during that period. So I think this is an important apology to, to observe, and I'm glad that it will happen soon. But it's also important from a political perspective that we understand, look, th these policies were introduced by the Labour Party, and we've almost gone full circle in that it is the Labour government today that's wanting to apologise. So I think that's a good thing, but that's just political rhetoric at, 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 to some degree. We've got to go further because that's what's going to help the healing and the reconciliation of these communities to integrate into New Zealand society. Ephesol, in the Tongan community, when we look at, we don't call it dawn raids, we called it dulikuli, yeah. which basically translates to being chased by dogs. Mm. And that just speaks to the level of trauma that people uh, speak or think of when they remember that event. And in the Samoan community, you, you mentioned your parents. Mm. Uh, what, what do you remember and what were the stories that you heard? Yeah, I, I was very young at the time. Uh, I was born in 1974. I made that admission on public TV. But the, my, my dad <laughs> ran a billiard centre in Otara and he said that the police came through all the time. He got accustomed to, to uh, taking his passport with him. He was a Samoan man who had an afro, so got stopped all the time. And if you think about that fear that that instilled in them, look, the, the fact is, even today, Māori and Pacific people are still being chased by police dogs. So very little has changed. And so that pain comes through into our society today. Yes, I do want to touch on that racial targeting, but before I go there, uh, Dr Sumeo, let's talk about the workforce. For all the cheap labour that New Zealand has gained from the Pacific over the years, how are Pacific workers faring in Aotearoa now, one or two generations on? Mm. Well, I think it's pretty well known, there's a lot of evidence at the moment that Pacific people continue to be the lowest paid, if you look at mm. compare our, our people to, to other ethnic groups. Um, and there's just been a lack of urgency to address that. And so... I think one way that New Zealand can move forward, you know, we have these huge violations of fundamental human rights that's occurred through the Don Raids, and as both our brothers have, have spoken, it's continuing. So actually, we need to address this with a really urgent, mm. in an urgent manner. And remedy is really important if we're going to address violations, especially violations that have been sanctioned and designed by the state. And that's the key thing about this is not our government trying to do something nice, you know, based on good faith. No, it's their duty. Yeah. It's their duty to remedy this. And the remedy is not going to start and end with an apology. This may take years, if possible, possibly a generation to remedy, to make this right. Because our children are suffering. I'm suffering. And I'm the generation that, that arrived here after. Mm -hmm. So this is going to take a long time. So, you know, big ups to our government. But I want to say, I want to acknowledge Sefita um, uh, right here, who was one of the champions, yeah. you know, the key voices when everything else mm. was against them. Yeah, um, people like him, the Black Panthers, they stood yeah. up for it. They were our first human rights commissioners, <laughs> our Black mm. Panthers, and yeah. everyone alongside them. Mm. You know, they stood up for our rights when they had everything to lose. And I want to acknowledge that oh, today. Yeah. Nice. So, Sefita, what were your thoughts when you heard the government announcement that it was going mm. to make a formal apology? Well. 
Um, it was better late than never. And I think mm. um, it was great that we got around to it. Um, but it gave us time, I think, to, to reflect and think back because um, labor mobility and migration uh, of Pacific people is very much at the heart of all of this. Um, I can speak for the Tongan experience because it's slightly different from Samoa, Samoa being a realm country in the past. We didn't come in large numbers until the 70s. In fact, we were at the very forefront of what became the Dawn Raid era. Um, not many Tongans were allowed to leave Tonga, uh, to have passports, for instance, so it was novel and new. And to a large extent, I think the, the reason for leaving Pacific countries is to realize hopes and aspirations. That also speaks to our, our governments in the Pacific, because if people are not prepared to remain and they're looking elsewhere, there is a responsibility for Pacific governments to, to look inwardly and see what they could do. When people are desperate to move, and I think in this case we're not moving as refugees, huh? we're moving more as people looking for something that they were unable to get back at home. We are neighbors. I think the, 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 the responsibility rests with governments to try and make this as best as we can for those who want to do it. I think Efeso touched very quickly on this and, and quite rightly so. Labor invented the 70s labor mobility program that we took part in willingly. We came, we did break the laws. There is no excuse, however, for the way that we were treated because other people were doing the same thing. We were selected out for this. Since then, things have changed. We now have the recognized seasonal employer program. Australia has SWP and PLS. We have learned from the past, but have we learned <laughs> adequately and enough? One of the things that the uh, ROC has brought around, you have heard of the so-called living wage. The Pacific um, employees under the ROC were given the first opportunity to actually um, take on what they call the living wage of $22.90 an hour. Not a huge jump, and I can hear what uh, Sumail was talking about too. Is that supposed to be the living wage for New Zealand? It could be the living wage for some of our villages back home, but you're asking for it to be different for New Zealand as well. What, what, Sefitha, what about the attitude though to migrant workers and particularly the Pacific mm. community really <clears throat> sensed this back in the dawn raids and perhaps still now, the, the sense that you're welcome when you're needed, when you're invited, mm. and you are despised and seen as a burden when you're no longer needed? I think it comes back to, to the way the policy is being framed as well, because don't forget, Many Pacific countries have not quite sort of indicated what do they want out of this? Uh, do you want to be a new wave and have, what, 1,200 people being the population of your country? Do you want to be the Cook Islands where they're now looking for labor to come in and replace those who have left? Where is the population plan uh, for the Pacific? Right. So that we can rationalize some of the decisions that are being made on our behalf. So that New Zealand and Australia could respond or we could respond much more appropriately 
for the needs of New Zealand and Australia. That conversation needs to take place much more intensely than we are finding now. Right, so, so clarifying the different intentions around the RSE between the two governments involved or parties involved. If Fessel, when we look at racial targeting uh, in the Pacific community, is it still happening? Yes, it is still happening. I sit on a, an independent review panel that's looking into uh, police delivery and I'm glad I've been, been invited to look at it because we know that the police, in my uh, opinion, have had poor historical relations with Māori and Pacific communities. I also think we need to understand that New Zealand introduced in 1982 the Citizenship Western Samoa Act and that means that anyone who was a British uh, British person had uh, was under governance, we were at the time under New Zealand administration at the time, was no, no longer had the right, if you were Samoan, to citizenship in New Zealand. We had the case where Falemai Lesa took it to the Privy Council and the Privy Council found in favour of her and then the New Zealand government at the time quickly introduced the Citizenship Act, which is one of the most racist pieces of legislation in the world. That piece of legislation still hasn't been repealed. I'd like to see an apology alongside repealing this piece of legislation. So, so an apology is a start, yes. but it's just words and the action that needs to take, take place on it, we, to forward from it, we will talk about uh, reparations, uh, what should the apology entail, uh, a pathway for permanent residency to RSC workers and perhaps a long-term overstayers. Mm. The government has never really clearly acknowledged mm. and addressed the solution to that and some of them have been here for one or two generations. Uh, mm. Dr Sumil, mm. Uh, when you think about, you know, even how Māori stood with us uh, mm. back, back in that time and um, advocated for the Pacific community now, mm. how can New Zealand do better in supporting migrant workers? Because that racial uh, targeting yes. attitude is still there to the migrant workforce, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, I think the, the key thing to, if I can call it, to progress, you know, moving out of that, the dawn, right, the dark period, was working alongside our whanaunga. Māori whanaunga and I think that relationship has stayed still especially now it's really really visible um, I'm not sure that we would progress without mm -hmm. having our whanaunga beside us and you know and, and holding hands with us um, and certainly in terms of um, the treatment of our migrant workers I mean you know, look at it, look at our country. We would fall apart if we didn't have our migrant workers from the Pacific, from the Philippines, from India, mm -hmm. China, everywhere. And so, what's happening to us, and what we're talking about now in terms of remedying this terrible human rights violation? So, we have our cousins from those other destinations also worried about them, because mm -hmm. okay, you needed us, we came here, and now COVID's hit. You, you know, you don't want us anymore. You know, our families are separated. So. You know, so they're, they're watching, listening here because they're thinking about what's happening to them. So we have to be really, really careful. You know, we value people. We have labor shortages, right? We need to invest in our people here. And what would be really fantastic if we hold on to that talent, Pacific and non-Pacific talent, because we can't afford to lose them. Mm -hmm. And when the borders open, there'll be huge competition for them. And yet we've invested in them this whole time. So we need to hold on and respect and honor that talent and treat it well or we will lose it and our prosperity will be affected by it. Mm -hmm. right. Thank you very much. Uh, we will be back right after the break. We'll take a quick break now and come back with our panel.
Welcome back to our panel. We had hoped to speak to Samoa's Prime Minister-elect, Fiamir Naomi Mata'afa, directly this morning, but she has been pulled into an urgent meeting that may be related to her upcoming court action this week. Efeso, do you think this will be re resolved? I mean, we're 10 weeks on. Yeah. It is definitely on the road to resolution. I, I, look, we can stand proud. I remember when I was being asked these questions earlier by the mayor of what was happening in Samoa, one of the first questions Barangi journalists were asking me was, will this end in bloodshed? I think it's important that we understand Samoa has shown that we can talk through these issues. Yeah, it's tough, depending on what side of the fence you fit, sit on, whether you're FAST or HRPP, uh, that's going to be how you're driven by your response to this. But I think Samoa has shown that we can dialogue through this, we can use the court system, we can understand that people are sitting on edge a little bit, but I think this is going to be resolved and I hope that this urgent meeting is all about, yeah, let's uh, make sure that we move on with this parliament. There are great parliamentarians in Samoa. Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. Sumel, when we look at the Pacific region, we have the lowest rate of women in politics. And, yes, and thinking about still. The, the significance, still, and thinking about the significance yeah. of Fia Mare, if you go, you know, her father was the first Prime Minister of mm. Samoa, her grandfather helped frame the constitution, her mother was an MP, uh, you know, she was first female cabinet minister, first female deputy prime minister. So her appointment, if it is made official, mm. uh, would be significant to the region and Samoa, wouldn't it? Absolutely. It'll be, it'll be huge. It'll be huge for Samoa. It'll be huge for, you know, I think of Tonga, you know, I, I think of Papua New Guinea, and every, anywhere around, around the Pacific. So this would be huge. And, you know, as, as we're talking, I think, what if the opposition was a male? If we had two men in Samoa yeah. fighting over power, where would our country be? And I think it's really key that we have a woman leader who is keeping the peace and we're operating our whiangainga, the respect of mm. the brother to the mm. sister. That's, for me, that's been really key to keeping this, this change uh, peaceful um, and dignified. But absolutely, we need more women. We need more women in, in government in Samoa. I mean, you know, that's the impact that a woman's leadership mm. can have. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing we were going to ask for Mayor, because she was a cabinet minister at the time that Helen Clark's mm. government made mm. that apology back mm. in 2002. So for Samoans, the Dawn Raid apology will be its second, their yeah. second that they are to receive from the New Zealand government. Uh, but uh, what's, what's in the word? What's in sorry? What, what, is, what is it about the word sorry? What should it entail? And what should righting a wrong look like for our Pacific community here? It's the recognition that, that a wrong had been, um, had been done and for those who were wronged was to feel that um, that recognition meant, that, um, meant to make them feel valued and feel that uh, things are much better off than what it had been. It's also an opportunity I think to uh, learn from what had happened, learn from the past and to bring parties to some sort of parity so they can continue to coexist in order to live life as if you've turned a new page and look forward for things that are likely to be better than what it's been in the past. Right. So uh, for the apology that we're looking for moving forward from here, um, I can speak from the Tongan end of it as well because I think there's a slight difference between the expectations of our communities on this. Uh, Samoa has had one previously. This is one in which we're becoming involved. Uh, as a community, we're talking now about how should we respond to this apology. And I think that there are two ways of looking at this. One is that, that we, it is of right that we should take it 
and walk away from the table as if that was the end of it. The other school of thought is that um, in time we say uh, for, for an apology to be effective, you have to actually respond apologetically. Uh, we call it fe more more aki. The two parties. The two parties, you apologise. We also apologise to you in return for having brought this upon all of us. We had a party to play in this too, don't forget. Huh? And that recognition is very important because A, the law was broken. Number two, we still continue, in fact, to break the law. In other words, there are still illegal migrants in this country. Wait, and it looks as though it will it continue for some time. And I want to go back to what Sumeo was talking about too, is because if we have to learn something out of this, particularly for labor migration, New Zealand has a permanent labor shortage. It's trying to fix it with a temporary plaster over it over time. So I guess if you like to see where do we go from here, this could be a pointer in what might happen. It's for New Zealand to think more seriously about its migration policy, the shortage of labour, and whether this is the best way to resolve it. I, I want to touch on both sides taking responsibility here. Because EFESA, when we look, it's widely actually known that a lot of employers are seized the passports of some of the Pacific migrants that were here so that they couldn't go get a job anywhere else, mm -hmm. and also connived with them to, so that they didn't have to uh, pay extra fees to renew visas and things like that. And we're talking about people whose English was their second language, mm -hmm. they didn't actually know the law and didn't understand all of their mm -hmm. rights. Uh, when, when you look at responsibility, what are your thoughts? What do you make of what Sefita said? Oh, at the end of the day, New Zealand put out the welcome mat to the Pacific. We came on the understanding that they are the host, they are going to treat us well, look after us and respect us. They didn't. They failed in their host responsibility. The apology is important because firstly it, recognizing, it recognises that a wrong has been done against a number of communities. Now we need to look at what millennials are after today, which is they want justice, they want social justice, they acknowledge there's climate change. So it's important that we're honest, that we're genuine. The apology has to be genuine and in being genuine, this isn't just about being sorry, it's about being better. And being better means we start to implement new policy like repealing the racist citizenship Western Samoa Act 1982 and looking at reparation. I don't know how reparation is going to work. I'm a governor of Auckland City. Our job is to set the strategic direction for the city and the public service come up with how that works and my challenge to the Minister of Pacific Peoples and the Ministry of Pacific Island Affairs is what does reparation look like and how are they going to make it look good and feel good for our community because healing and reconciliation takes time. I've come I'm a little bit angry today because this injustice was done on our people and only now it's being acknowledged that that's years of injustice that we have internalized. My mum doesn't want to talk about it. She's that affected by it that she refuses to talk about it and I think it's really important that our school curriculum changes we've got the, the Polynesian Panthers who are talking about educate to liberate we've got to have it in our curriculum my wife used to teach history at high school she introduced it New Zealand's curriculum's too loose around acknowledging that there has been past hurt that's how I think a sorry a genuine apology is going to look especially for my daughters who are very young so that they can acknowledge that past hurts have been done to our people. I think that's a, a perfect way to end it there. We just want to thank you all you panellists for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time. After the break, we meet two of the newest members of Parliament.
ora, I'm Nancy Chen, Labour List MP based in Botany. Hi, I'm Karen Chaw, I'm a List MP for the ACT Party. I'm based in Upper Harbour on the North Shore in Auckland. No my hockey my. Welcome back to Q&A. Last year's election brought a huge group of new MPs into Parliament, many of them also quite new to politics. Well, this morning in our first term faces series, Fenner Owen catches up with two Auckland-based MPs with very different stories. Kia ora, I'm Nancy Chen and I'm a Labour List MP based in Botany. So this morning we're going to an event called Art Our East and that's where we can meet lots of young and emerging artists here and living in here in East Auckland. Why are and you walking so, you walking so <laughs> slow because of your heels? Oh, these are, heels. these are shoes are my little guilty pleasure. Like it's the only thing that I actually collect in the world. You know Paula Bennett was like that. <laughs> I'm not going to be called the second Paula Bennett. <laughs> so we'll just watch you do your mahi yep. and mingle. Yep. How old were you when you came up from five. Beijing? From five. five. Yeah, so um, don't remember much. So I did all my schooling kind of here in New Zealand. Okay. Um, I, I have been back to China since, but it's, yeah, but New Zealand's very much my home. Hi everyone, my name is Nancy Chen and I'm a Member of Parliament for Aotearoa New Zealand. The first comment that came out on that um, live video yeah. was that, oh my gosh, you speak with a Kiwi accent. Like, I think people just automatically assume that if I was Chinese, I was in politics, that I would speak with a Chinese accent. You're the only Chinese MP at the Absolutely, moment. yeah, and um, obviously I think one is to not just pigeonhole me, I guess. That's, that's a really, like, people don't just think I'm in Parliament to advocate just for that community or just for issues to do with China. That's never who I am. Um, you know, I think, I think I'm think i really, you know, strong advocate for the arts sector, for the youth in New Zealand. What was it, what was it like when your loyalty was being questioned a, was, a few years yeah, ago? Yeah, that was really hurtful to, to, to start with because I just feel like I've called New Zealand my, you know, home for all my life, that all my, well, all the life that I've known, and I've always kind of re been really proud that I'm a Kiwi. I would call it racism, because I think they just saw a Chinese person in politics, they thought you must be working in some other capacity, you know, and I, that, that I think is just lazy. Do, 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 you, do you know why they came to that conclusion, though? Because, of course, that you were the head of the Chinese, New Zealand yeah. Chinese Students yeah. Association, yeah. which they say, they say, is uh, has links to the United yeah. Front under the CCP. Yeah. So does it? No, absolutely not. So, so do you feel free to like make a comment or a statement about Tiananmen Square? Yeah, instance, I, I stand on my values and I and I and those I think are extremely well aligned with um, the Labour Party values and what our party does. And obviously we have. So you would condemn that action? Um, whatever the Labour, like we've got a foreign diplomatic policy, and Anaya has made her statements on that, and I stand by those. I feel extremely lucky to be in this term of parliament together. But I am the baby of caucus at the moment. And, and I think it's so lucky that I am because I think everyone just looks after me so well. I've got people, colleagues who are my mother's age in there and they just really dote on me and really look after me. Okay, half past 11, what have you got to do next? Yes, I've just got about 10 more minutes here and then I have to go meet up with actually one of our local board members to talk a little bit about what we can do for the environment here in East Auckland. How do I say yes, 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 and then say Jen, it's good Say Jen. Say Jen. Say Jen. Hi, I'm Karen Chaw, I'm a List MP for the ACT Party. I'm based in Upper Harbour on the North Shore in Auckland. So why did you choose ACT? 
I just liked what they stood for. I liked the principle of personal responsibility. I kind of have it in my mind that why can't we have a prosperous society with a social conscience and I don't think you should have to choose. This is the centre of the community for me. Four of my kids have come through this school. So you're a mum of four children and you're married to a Kiwi who came out here as a Cambodian refugee. Yep. Have I got that right? Yes. Yeah, he came um, when he was a baby with his parents who came here as refugees. You grew up in many households, didn't you? I started off with the family, like um, they were trying to find family that would, would take me in. Um, that didn't really turn out too well. And when you know a family member is taking you, but not really because they want to, but they feel like they have to, it's kind of hard to feel like you belong. Ethnicity and culture should not be how we decide what's in the best interest of our children. Oranga Tamariki should be colourblind and open to whatever will ensure a child's well-being and safety. I stayed with a lady who took me in, who, who had a lot of foster children go through her house, and she was a, a stable place for me for a while, and, and she taught me life skills. She taught me that I did have a place in this world. So the first home we brought is just down the road from this school, my children could walk to this school. And that was a significant moment for you? Yes, because it was the first time I, I, I knew I'd just laid some roots. I knew that I was never going to have to move and, and I was going to be able to um, have some stability for my family, wh which I never had growing up. Do you mind if I ask you about what happened to you in Copperfields, oh, the no. Parliament's Cafe? <laughs> yeah. Is that No, no worries. So I tapped Brooke on the shoulder and I said to her, oh, I really can't breathe right now. And um, she kind of went, what? And I, I, I can't breathe. So I got sat down and they, and they went and got some help. And, and who did they get? Uh, uh, Shane Retty, so... Um, oh my goodness, if, you, if you're going to have a medical, medical yes. emergency, you want to have it around Shane yes. Retty, I imagine. Yes, and he was very calming and, and he, kept me, he kept me sane until, until the ambulance could come. So all these people warning you that, um, that uh, Parliament's such a horrible place, you've seen the other side of it too. I think, I think uh, putting politics aside, uh, everybody that goes in there has their reasons and, and they've gone in there to make a change and, and they all want New Zealand to be a better place. Well, we just disagree about how to go about it. Thanks for watching this morning and a special thanks to our Q&A team behind the scenes helping to produce this show. Jack will be back next Sunday at 9am. Now it's time for Marae. Enjoy the rest of your day. Ni there. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.